we're going to continue on in our series that we started last Sunday called Flourish. And the working definition that we're using for flourishing is this, to grow or to develop in a healthy or vigorous way, especially as the result of a particularly favorable environment. Just a quick recap of last week, we were talking about specifically our minds and our emotions and how to flourish in those aspects, but uh, keeping it in context, God is... Uh, triune, and we are in three parts as well. We're mind, body, and spirit. And so last week we talked about how the practices of Jesus help to keep all three parts of us balanced and moving forward and creating a healthy spiritual environment so that our minds and our emotions can flourish. You know that if the heart and the mind are left separate from the spirit, then they're operating according to the flesh, and nothing good happens that way. We talked about that last week. Uh, And so we were talking about creating the right spiritual environment. And one big takeaway from last week was that you can flourish anywhere you find yourself. It doesn't require the right natural environment. You don't have to be in the right place or here, you know, in, in, in a specific location of the country or free from certain types of conflict or whatever in order to flourish the way God intended you because it's not a natural world thing. You are a spiritual creature in a natural world. And so the spiritual environment that you partner with Jesus to create in your life is what causes you to have the right ground to flourish. Okay? And actually what we're talking about today is very much in line with creating the right spiritual environment. I want to revisit a scripture that we brought up last week, John 15, 5 through 8. I'm the vine, Jesus said, you're the branches. If you remain in me, and I remain in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." John 15, 5 through 8 is really relevant for what we're going to be talking about today because it involves and speaks to a mutual promise that we enter into with God. And and within the context of that mutual promise, uh, God establishes relationship. And And he sets out not only the benefits, but also the responsibilities that we have and that he has in maintaining the health of that relationship. So covenant is just in general defined as an agreement between two parties. That's all it is. It's just an agreement. A promise is different. A promise is one party agreeing to do something, and the other party doesn't really have to do anything to get it. Right? That's a promise. How many of you have broken a promise in here before? Me? Yeah, thank you. Kyle, shout it out when you know. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah, Uh, all of us have. All of us have made promises. All of us have broken them. And so you know that if it's a promise situation, the reason you feel guilty if you break a promise is because they weren't, you know, they were expecting something. They weren't required to do anything for you to make good on it, but then you just kind of drop the ball, right? A promise is one party doing everything, the other party just receiving. Covenant is different. Covenant is a mutual promise. And in our context here as believers, covenant is an agreement between God and a person. 
that establishes and maintains a relationship. And that includes, once again, the benefits of that relationship and the responsibilities that you have in that relationship. Now, we're going to take a look at the first example of covenant in the Bible. It's, he's not, we're not using the word covenant. That doesn't appear until Genesis chapter 6 when God's talking with Noah. But this is uh, the Lord in the garden with Adam and then with Eve as, we, as it unfolds. But we're in Genesis chapter 2, going way back to the beginning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And all the guys here said amen to that. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So we're, lo- we're looking at God giving Adam responsibility and some creative control over what God is making. He's saying, Adam, here's your responsibility. One of the things I'm asking you to do is to name everything. I want you to be in creative partnership with me. How awesome is that? To be just kind of walking through the garden and God's just, stuff is just coming up out of the ground. God's just creating things out of the dirt and it becomes things. And he's like, what do you call that? And Adam is like, dodo. I don't, he just, you know, just, I, these things are just, I don't even have to think about it. God, they're just coming, you know, that's a, it's a crane, you know, all, the, all these kinds of, that's a buffalo, you know, the, he's just naming it all, right? And so, so the Lord God, uh, Oh, but no, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There's a couple things that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about covenants. And already, we have seen an example of covenant, a mutual promise between God and man walking around through the garden. A mutual promise between God and man. We are seeing another kind of covenant, marriage. We're seeing the two who are separate beings brought back together and made one, made one flesh. And we're seeing this covenant relationship for the very first time here. Now, it also says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I want to just highlight for you and forecast for you a bit. We're going to get into talking about intimacy just a little bit, but in the context of covenant. Um, Now, God establishes these relationships, the relationship that he has with Adam and Eve, and the relationship that Adam and Eve have with one another. And this agreement is yielding some really clear benefits, right? First of all, we mentioned this a minute ago, creative partnership with God. That's something that they're experiencing right now. God is asking them to do things with his creation, to tend to the garden, to name things. They've got creative partnership with him. 
Also, companionship specifically designed for them and created by God. So that's, that's a clear benefit. And then freedom and peace that come from being in the constant presence of God. So they've got freedom and peace. They've got creative license. They've got companionship. And that's really a lot of benefits. But there's also a responsibility. And there's, there's a boundary. And honestly, it really is that whole you had one job kind of thing. Right? There is a boundary. And that boundary is this. Don't eat from that tree. Everything else is fine. Don't eat from that tree. Because if you do, it's going to lead to your destruction. Right? So that's their responsibility. That's their part in all of this. Which leads us to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See how subtle this is? What a great lawyer, right? See how subtle this is? Because God said, we saw it back in chapter 2. God said, you can eat from any tree but that one. And so the servant comes to her and says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? Putting, you know, flipping the script on her, putting this in her mind, starting to sow seeds of doubt. And so the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That, I, I'm, I make sure I emphasize who was with her because sometimes Eve gets a bad rap. And he's like, oh, she, she ate it and then she took it somewhere else. Like she went to Boise or something and, you know, because Adam was on vacation or something. It says... She handed it, she took some and she handed it to Adam, who was right there listening to that whole conversation, right? And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. This is where we get into covenant. Covenant is a sacred agreement and a mutual promise that we make with God to have an intimate, a personal, and a unifying relationship with him. It's an agreement that we enter into. Now, when we honor that covenant, it has obviously some boundaries. It also has some benefits. And when we honor it, we get to experience the blessing and produce the fruit that comes from it that God originally intended. See, within the covenant that God had established with Adam and with Eve, they had peace, they had protection, they had provision, they had purpose, they had stuff to do and, 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 and a reason for being, and they had the complete absence of shame. They had innocence. They had no fear. They had nothing but confidence and comfort with who they were and who their God was. That's what they had. 
But then when they embrace the counterfeit that the enemy presents with them, when they hear something that causes them to doubt, makes them confused, and then they follow the lie. When they choose to follow the lie, what it produces in them is exactly the opposite of what God had intended. Not even just like a little bit off. It's exactly opposite of what God intended for them to have. It burdens them down with shame and, it, and fear. It takes them out of a place of peace. It takes them out of that protective boundary that God had them in, and it distances from them very physically. They have to leave the garden and become distanced from God. And then it also changes the way that they perceive themselves, and it changes the way they perceive God. If you look at Genesis 3-7, this is the shame part of it. The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Before, and we just saw at the end of chapter 2, they were both naked, and they had no shame about that at all. But as soon as they believed the lie, all of a sudden they realized, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. Uh, we, we, we don't feel comfortable. We don't, where's this coming from? It's coming from the lie about who they are and about who God is and about how God sees them. And it's coming from the shame of having disobeyed exactly what he told them to do. They realized they were in the wrong. But instead of running to God, they run and hide from him. Genesis 3, 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Not something you want to have to say to anybody ever, honestly. <laughs> if that phrase ever comes out of your mouth, then you've had a bad day. <laughs> I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. So I and actually, that's going to make them afraid too, if you ever have to say anything like that to anybody. So they're exiled from the garden by their own choices. This is so important for us to remember as we move forward into the rest of this message. They are exiled from the garden. They have everything turned around for them. All the consequences that they're experiencing, which are opposite of what God intended, is by their own choice. Because get this, the enemy can't make us do anything. How many times have we prayed this? The devil has no authority over me. The devil has no authority over me. But sometimes when we fall into sin, we forget that, and it's easy to blame him. But honestly, he has no authority over me. It's acts of volition. It's forgetting who I am, forgetting what God asks of me. It's moments of weakness. And we get into situations where a lie has been presented to us, and we give it authority by our own choice and our own power, and we follow it and we yield the fruit of it. Since the beginning. This is what he's been doing. I mean, we're reading the beginning. This is the beginning. Since that time, he's been at work trying to distract us with lies about God's covenant blessing, with God, lies about who God is. And he's trying to get us to embrace those lies and take them somewhere. And when we do that, it distances us from God 
and it leads us down paths of destruction and eventually death if we remain in them. There are two lies that the enemy continually tries to distract us with. I'm going to go through these really quickly. Line number one, the enemy will try to tell you, remember, covenant is a mutual agreement that we make with God. He says, I want to offer all of this to you in return. Please do this in honor of me. We come into agreement with it, and then the enemy will, as he mentioned, as soon as we come into agreement with something, the enemy will hear it, and he will come and try to convince us, line number one, that we are more free if we break the covenant. He'll try and convince us, you know, you are more free if you don't follow that rule. God's asking you to do that? Ooh, that sounds like a lot. You know, it's probably going to be better if you can do your own thing. God's just trying to keep you down. You'd be more free if you were outside of that covenant. That's what he tells Eve. That's what he tells Adam. Did, that, did God really say don't eat from that? Yeah, he did. He didn't mean that. He meant something way different. So the pitch is boundaries are only there to restrict you, keep you contained. God doesn't want you to be free and do your own thing. The reality is that our own thing, as good as it is, is never as good as what God intended for us to have in covenant with him. My own plans pale in comparison to what he wants for me. Psalm 119, 92 through 94 says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. So that's lie number one. Lie number one that he wants to get us to believe is that we are more free if we break covenant. Lie number two that he wants us to believe is that we can have all the benefits God has promised us without any other responsibility. We can have all the benefits of the covenant without living up to our responsibilities. The, the, the pitch that he gives us is, yeah, no, God's plan has some benefits. I totally get that. But there are other, easier ways to get that without having a cost to you. Easy ways out. It's this way for absolutely every sin that we ever get into. God has a plan for us. He's got something he wants us to do. He wants us, he's calling us to something higher, and the enemy will lie to us and say, you can have that higher thing if, if you go lower. You can have that higher thing without the cost. That sounds like a lot of work. It's exactly what he tempted Jesus with. He said in the wilderness to him, if you're the son of God and you're hungry, why don't you just command those stones to become bread? I mean, that takes care of the problem, and then you don't have to go through all the stuff he wants you to do. Why don't you just meet your own need? The same. It's the same lie every time. Every time. The reality is that there is absolutely no substitute for something that God has promised, right? Any, anyone who tells you differently is selling something. There is no substitute for what God has promised. Psalm 1830 says, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. His way is perfect. If you ever get tempted into like, oh, maybe I could take the easy way out, remember Psalm 1830. As for the Lord, his way is perfect. His way is perfect. His word is flawless. Uh, and, and although he does give us things in abundance, he gives us things liberally, they don't come without a cost. 
They don't even, salvation is a free gift, but it does cost us in terms of submission and surrender, in terms of putting aside our own will, our own way, our own desire, our own selfishness, our own ambition, our own lives. If we want his life, we have to be willing to put aside our own. That is the covenant agreement. And that is what the enemy is trying to get us to forget. Luke 12, 48, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. So we've been talking about covenant because I wanted us to have context. I wanted us to have context. Covenant is a mutual agreement with benefits very clearly, but boundaries that are there to protect us and to help us flourish and produce the fruit that he intended. Not the fruit of my own mind, not the fruit of my own will, not the fruit of my own desire, but the fruit that he's trying to produce in us. This is not about anything else except who we are becoming in God. It's about who we are becoming in God. And there are a lot of examples of covenants found in the Bible. There are five major ones running through the Bible that kind of tie together the whole story. We're not going to get into all those today, so I don't know why I mentioned it right now. But for the modern believer, there are two huge covenants that we see in Genesis 2 and 3, right? The first, and this affects every believer, every modern-day believer, is the new covenant. The new covenant. Jesus, his sacrifice for us. We turn our hearts to Jesus, and through his death and his resurrection, we are forgiven of all sin. Our fellowship with God is restored. We now have, not only are we living in him, he is living in us. The two of us, me and Jesus, become one. There's no more distance or separation between me and God because of what Jesus has done right? Uh, Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the new covenant, which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We were separated from God, but through Jesus, we are again made one with him. And this is a level of intimacy that is not to be shared with any other God. And we can make up a lot of gods in our own mind. We can worship a lot of stuff. His, this level of intimacy, we give ourselves over to him, is not to be shared with any other God, any other idol. That's for him alone. That is for him alone. That's the covenant. That's the boundary. That's where the blessing is. So the new covenant applies to all believers. Now, the other covenant that applies to a lot of us in, you know, in our modern world, this is, and, and it's something that we see for the very first time in that uh, chapter of Genesis, chapter 2, is the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is our real-world example of the type of intimate and personal relationship that God intends to have, not only with you as an individual, but with all believers together collectively as one body. It's Jesus' final prayer in John 17, that they would all be one as you and I are one. Jesus came to bring unity and for him to know and for us to know intimately not only as an individual, but collectively as a body. 
for us to know and to be known. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, when you are a married person, you come into a level of relationship that is unlike any other relationship that you will have on this earth. It is different, and it is meant to be so. It is a level of intimacy that you share with that person alone. Otherwise, you're just friends, right? Otherwise, you're just friends. We're talking about intimacy. We're talking about the one area, actually, of our lives that the enemy particularly targets the most. And you can see this in our culture everywhere. I'm about to get into it. Here we go. There's one aspect that the enemy particularly targets with these two lies because it can be so effective at damaging both the new covenant relationship we have with with God and the marriage covenant relationship that either you have or that he intends for you to have at some point in your life. And the area that he targets is sex and intimacy. Sex and intimacy. And I don't think it's any secret. You don't have to look very far to see that the enemy has infused these two lies into how we view sex, and how we view intimacy. What are the two lies again? The two lies is that you're more free outside of covenant and that you can have all the benefits without having to enter into covenant. Those are the two lies that he has been trying so desperately to beat us over the head with and get us to just give in to. And that is why we see so much hurt in our relationships. Our earthly relationships, our relationship with the Father, just as with Adam and Eve, right? Once, they, once shame was brought in, all of a sudden they realized that they were naked and they became afraid of what God was thinking of them, of how they would be perceived, of how they saw one another, right? The enemy has been using how we view one another, and using this very natural aspect of our lives, sex and intimacy, and trying to infuse it with these two lies so that we will begin to view one another differently, so that damage can happen in our lives, so that we will carry on wounds and carry on hurts, physical, emotional, and spiritual, that will damage all of our future relationships. That's the plan. That's the plan. And so... The level of intimacy that we have in the new covenant, the marriage covenant, are all-encompassing. They touch physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's bonding, and it's not to be taken lightly or shared broadly. It's to be protected and reserved within the context of covenant where it can produce the fruit that God intended. So when I was growing up, too often, you know, people... A, a pastor or a parent or somebody would, would mention sex, and it was just a, a lot of, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Don't get me wrong. Don't do that, right? <laughs> so, there's a lot of don't do that involved in it. But we're talking about covenant because covenant is the why. Covenant is the why. Nothing in the kingdom of God is just about a set of rules. Everything in his kingdom is about a relationship. And every rule 
Or the enemy would try to say, oh, that's a rule. You need to disobey rule. Every boundary that he gives us is because he wants us to be preserved in relationship with him and with the ones he's called us to. He wants us to be made whole. He wants us to be protected. He wants us to be kept safe. He wants us to be in that place that Adam and Eve were before the serpent entered, a place of peace, a place of purpose, protection, where we know we have his provision and where we have the complete absence of fear and shame. That's why those boundaries are in place. But the enemy tries to tempt us into believing lies about this principle of intimacy. He wants us to believe that intimacy is something, and, and sex is something that we can have casually, we can have it generally, we can have it without consequence, right? Those are the two lies. And the more that we, the less we trust God, and the more that we give in to those lies and empower them with our choices, the more damage we cause to ourselves and to our relationships. What does it do? It distorts our view of others. We, we stop seeing people as fearfully and wonderfully made creations, and we start seeing people as dehumanized objects. That's what pornography is, right? It's, not, it's stopping looking at people as fearfully and wonderfully made creations, and it's starting looking at them as objects. It's dehumanizing. God made us so that we could see one another as fearfully and wonderfully made people. What else does it do? It brings on feelings of guilt, shame, and fear that color all of our future relationships with God and with other people. The last thing those lies do is they teach us not to love and serve another person, but to use and take from another person. It exalts the self. And I don't know what you believe about God, but the God I believe in is not into me exalting myself. He is into me serving and loving and giving because he's the only one who gets to be exalted. And anytime we act out a lie from the enemy, it's a sin, right? The enemy tells us lies all the time about a whole bunch of stuff. Whenever we give in to that lie, and we act based upon it, that's a sin. And we all do it. We all have committed all sorts of sins in all sorts of ways, but the sins related to sex and intimacy cut deeper because they affect so deeply spirit, body, and soul. Uh, Paul said this to the Corinthians and. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So many people carry, carry around wounds, hurts, misconceptions, deceptions about others and about themselves and about God based on acting on the world's view of sex and intimacy. And we have been, what we've been shown and what we've been sold by the world is based upon those lies that the enemy tells us about everything. You can have all the benefit without any of the covenant and you're a lot more free 
if you don't obey the covenant, right? But God does not operate that way. If we want to flourish, if we want to produce the fruit that God intended us to, if we want to focus those most personal aspects of our lives and keep them within the boundaries of the safety and and the protection and the provision offered by God, then then it comes down to us once again. Jesus, at the very beginning of the message, I said that Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, if we're going to produce in our lives and flourish the way that God wants us to, then every aspect of our lives, including these, these very personal areas, sex and intimacy, we, we need to give it all over to the Lord. We need to submit it all to him. We need to, we need to reaffirm covenant with him. Say, God, I, I don't want to miss it. I, your plan is better. Your way is better. And, and, and I, want to, I want to double down on becoming the person that you are creating me to be. Now, the, the bad news is that there are, in the room right now, there are people who have been hurt either by, you know, relating to this area. There's, there's hurts, there's wounds, there's, there's misconceptions, there's deceptions, there's, there's problems that come because either we followed the enemy's lie about intimacy down a certain path and, and, and we've distanced ourselves from God, or maybe somebody else has and we're a victim of it. That's the bad news, is that that happens. The good news is that no matter what area of our life sin is affecting, Jesus is stronger. Jesus is greater. So once again, this is not a don't do this, don't do that kind of message. This is a Jesus is greater message. His covenant is where we find safety. His covenant is where we find safety. It requires something of us. He's offering every benefit to us in the world. He's requiring for us to remain in him and let his words remain in us. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Uh, I, I want to mention here, before we uh, close in worship, uh, yeah, Chris and the team, if y'all could come up. Before we close in worship, I just want to mention this. Uh, this is a subject that's way too big to talk about in the short span of time that we have to talk about it, right? It's, it's opening up a can. <laughs> it's opening up a can where there's a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts and a lot of words and a lot of hurts that happen, and they're real. The enemy tries to sell us lies about intimacy, and it makes things go off course in our lives. That's real. But there's also healing in Jesus, and sometimes that healing that comes from Jesus comes from just you coming and worshiping him and asking for that healing, sometimes it comes from agreeing with another and having someone pray for you. Sometimes it comes through counsel. There is no part of you, spirit, soul, or body, that God cannot restore. And there's no part of us that God doesn't want to restore. He wants all of us. He wants that garden existence for us. And we have to take steps towards him, to partner with him and make that a reality in our lives.